Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Before I turn to the message, let me again publicly thank Dr. Aiken, Tony, for the invitation and opportunity to be a part of this great conference and to hang out on the campus for these days. In this brief time, I have fallen in love with Southeastern Seminary. It's been a joy to be among you, and it's my privilege to open the Word of God for you today. My assignment today is to talk about the glory of God in diversity. And I want to do so by pointing your attention to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Let's breathe the word of prayer, and then I want you to hear the reading of God's word, and then we'll plunge in together. We thank you afresh for the gift of this day and for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. In his name, we ask now that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. I pray, Father, that you would help us to lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness so that we may receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. And help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. I pray for physical strength and spiritual energy to preach your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And we pray that your son Christ would be exalted as your word is explained. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. This is God's plan for peace. I began pastoring my first church at the age of 17 years old. I did not learn, however, how to drive until I was 19 years old. Sad but true. One morning, the chairman of trustees at our church showed up in my apartment with a driving instructor. He couldn't take it anymore. After the lessons were over, the chairman took me to get my driver's license, and I bought my first little car on that very day. It was Wednesday, April 29, 1992. After getting my new car, I went to the church office. I had to teach a Bible study that evening and then drive across town to preach a service later. As I was preparing, I paused to turn on the news to catch the current events 
And I was saddened but not surprised to hear the breaking national news that a jury in Simi Valley had voted to acquit four officers on charges related to the videotaped beating of Rodney King. It consumed the rest of my afternoon. It wasn't long before this national news took a local focus. And I saw several black youth drag a truck driver, Reginald Dinney, from his cab and beat him nearly to death savagely right on the corner of Florence in the middle of the city. I went in to teach that Bible study in my church and warned the members not to try to follow me to the other side of town, but to go straight home after that Bible study. I jumped in my car to travel to preach. Several members jumped in the car for support, not support for preaching, support for a bigger issue I had that evening. I would drive the LA freeways for the first time. It was an adventure. After the service was over and we were making our way back, jokingly, the crew in the car with me began to again brace themselves for another wild ride. But none of us were ready for what we would experience. As we turned onto the on-ramp, onto the 110 freeway, everywhere you looked, there were balls of fire. While we were in worship that night, the city broke out in full riot. When the riot was finally over, 53 people were dead. There were 2,383 reported injuries. Over 3,100 stores, businesses were looted. More than 7,000 fires were started. And the city suffered more than $1 billion worth of damages. The riot didn't end until military forces showed up. But there was a big turning point in the midst of it all. As the city was in riot, Rodney King, the man at the center of it all, showed up on television, overwhelmed, obviously, by the moment and lost for words. And as he stammered for comment, he raised a simple but enduring question. Can we all just get along? Rodney King is now dead, but the question lives on. Personal problems, family issues, city needs, racial division, political infighting, terrorist threats, international conflict, all beg the question, can we all get along? Is peace possible? What does it take for love to replace hate? for unity to trump division, for kindness to end hostility. 
I submit to you that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 is God's plan for peace. And it is, in a real sense, a passage about the glory of God in as much as this plan is not really a plan, it's a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring peace with God, peace with self, and peace with others. In the verses that I have read for you, we see three ways God brings peace through Jesus Christ. First, Paul says in this text, Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2 is about our salvation in Christ. Verses 1 through 10 is about salvation in personal terms. Verses 11 through 22 is about salvation in cultural terms. In verses 1 through 10, Paul tells us how God makes Christians. In verses 11 through 22, Paul tells us how God makes the church. Predominant, predominantly, the church at Ephesus was made up of Gentiles. And in verses 11 through 13, Paul directly addresses his Gentile readers, saying, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I like the first two verses of verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verses 14 through 18, Paul will further explain how his readers went from what they were to what they are. And the message of the passage is that true peace is only found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace in the person of Christ. There is peace in the person of Christ. Micah chapter 5 verse 5 makes a prophecy about the coming Messiah King. It simply says, and he shall be their peace. That prophecy is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says here, at the beginning of verse 14, he himself is our peace. Jesus is the source of peace. Jesus is the embodiment of peace. Jesus is the personification of peace. Isaiah 9 verse 6 rightly calls him the prince of peace. 
He himself is our peace. It's emphatic. He and he alone is our peace. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says to the disciples, I spoke these things to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. One of the consequences of sin is a lack of peace. But Psalm 34, verses 11 through 14 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The psalmist says, if you want to have a good life, seek peace and pursue it. But where is this peace to be found? Paul declares of the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace. There is no peace without Christ. You cannot have peace with God or self or others without Christ. To find peace, you must run to the cross, repent of your sins, and trust in the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace in the person of Christ, but there is also peace in the work of Christ. In verse 14, Paul says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you see there in verse 14 the two ways the work of Christ has made peace for us? He first says, Christ himself is our peace because he is the one who has made us both one. In verse 12, Paul says that these Gentile readers were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. But now, he says, Christ has made the two one. He did not merely, Paul is not merely suggesting here that Christ made the Gentiles a part of Israel or that he taught the two how to coexist in some separate but equal status. He says Christ has made the two one. Our Kent Hughes comments here wisely that Christ did not Christianize the Jews or he did not Judaize the Gentiles. He did not, in other words, create a half-breed. He made an entirely new race. He made the two one. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 tell us, 
For as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Racial, culture, gender distinctions do not define Christians. We are a brand new race in Christ Jesus. He has made the two one. But that's not all. Verse 14 says he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The temple in Jerusalem was made up of various courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, the only place where Gentiles were welcome. That divided them from the Jews. But here, Paul says Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. This is about more than a physical structure, I believe. After the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that physical structure still stood for some years to come. It was standing when Paul wrote these words. I believe ultimately he is not talking here merely about a physical structure. He is talking about a spiritual attitude. You do know hatred and hostility can build walls without using bricks. But Christ has broken down the middle wall, the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? I'm glad you asked. Verse 14 says, he has broken down in his flesh. This is a reference to the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ by his righteous life and his atoning death. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has made peace between the, the guilty sinner and the holy God. And if so, if he has broken down the hostility, the wall of hostility between God and man, how dare we in the church build walls of hostility against one another? We must tear down any wall of hostility in the name of the one who has made us one. In Ephesians 4 and 32, Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. <laughs> How? The same way God in Christ forgave you. Jesus Christ is our peace. But secondly, Jesus Christ made peace for us. The beginning of verse 14, Paul says Christ is peace. The bottom of verse 15, Paul says Christ made peace. In fact, in verses 15 and 16, we see the way Christ made peace peace for us. First, we see that the law is the power over which Christ made peace for us. 
He made us one and broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This is the only place in the Scripture where all three of these terms are used together, law, commandments, and ordinances. It's an emphatic statement that God has a righteous standard that no one can reach. Or as Romans 3, 23 simply says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have broken God's law. We have disobeyed God's commandments. We have violated God's ordinances. But the scripture says Christ on our behalf has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This is not to say that he has rendered the law meaningless. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he did not abolish the law in the sense of rendering it meaningless. He has abolished the law in that by his blood and righteousness, he has satisfied all of the righteous demands of God. Or as Paul says in Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. When you trust in Christ, he takes your place so that you may stand in his righteousness by faith. But not only do we see here that the law is the power over which Christ has made peace for us, we see that the cross is the place where Christ made peace for us. Verse 15 says, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says here in verse 16 that Christ took our place and suffered on our behalf to reconcile us both to God. By Christ, we are reconciled to God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 declares there is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to God. How did he do it? Verse 16 states the means of this reconciliation in three words, through the cross. He did it through the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul explains you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is a righteous 
law that God has set before us. And we have rebelliously sinned against the law of God, and God has our rap sheet. But it was nailed to the cross, and the blood of Jesus covers the handwriting that is against us. He has reconciled us to God by the blood of his cross. William McDonald comments here that the cross is God's answer to racial animosity, segregation, anti-Semitism, bigotry, and every form of strife among men. He settled it at the cross. And the proof, the proof that Christ has made peace is the church. The church is the proof that Christ has made peace. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body. Do you see that? By the blood of his cross. He took these polarized groups, Jews and Gentiles, and has made us one new body. If you read down chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 is a call to walk in unity. And the basis of that unity is stated in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called into the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He has made us one by the blood of his cross, which gets to the bottom line, friends, of the real issue that separates us. It's not race or culture or status. It's sin. Think about it. Adam and Eve enjoyed peace with God and peace with one another, but when they sinned, everything changed. They began hiding from one another with fig leaves and hiding, trying to hide from God behind the trees. This is the problem of sin. It creates hostility with God and hostility with one another. But Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross, and he has made the two one new man. Dr. Aiken so wisely taught us this morning about the glory of God in marriage. I grew up in California where so many times people easily seek a divorce on, on the covering terms of irreconcilable differences. 
But if this text is true about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished at the cross, there is no such thing as irreconcilable differences. And as that is not so for the marriage, it is not so all the more for the church. We must not allow certain things, secondary things, like our styles and traditions, our customs, our tastes, our preferences, to erect some wall that separates us when Christ, by his blood, has made us one. We must be intentional and strategic about identifying any wall of hostility in the life of the church and tearing it down to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ made peace for us. Thirdly, the text teaches us Jesus Christ preached peace to all. We have seen in verses 14 through 16 that there is peace in the person and work of Christ. In verses 17 and 18, we will see that there is peace as well in the message of Christ. We receive the message of peace through Christ. Verse 17 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. When did Christ preach peace? The obvious answer seems to be during his earthly ministry, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. He preached peace, says Paul, to those who were far off. There were occasions where Jesus directly ministered to Gentiles, but the focus of his earthly ministry was to the lost house of Israel. And if he preached peace merely during his earthly ministry on the basis of what did he preach that peace? Verses 14 through 16 is clear that it happened by the death he died after the life he lived. Really, I believe that this preached peace refers to the gospel work of the early church. I believe it is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts. I believe it is an affirmation of the great commission Jesus has given us to go and make disciples of all the nations. But the larger question of verse 17 is, to whom did he preach peace? To those who were far off and to those who were near. The far off refers to the Gentiles who he directly addresses in this section. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says the Gentiles were far off, the Jews were near, but Christ preaches peace to those 
far off and those who are near. This is a subtle but powerful affirmation of sovereign grace. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But here in verse 17, Paul reverses the order, and he says he preached Christ to those who were, first he says, far off, and to those who are near. And he is saying to us that no matter your culture, your race, your background, your ethnicity, your nationality, sin places us all at the same level. And even more important, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. He proclaims peace to those who are far and to those who are near. Picture the days of Noah. Imagine there were rich people who lived high up in the hills. I can't prove it, but play along with me for just a moment. Poor people who lived in the valley. But when the rain fell and the floods rose, it did not matter if you lived on a hill or in the valley. Everyone who was doomed, was doomed, who did not have a ticket to ride with Captain Noah on the good ship Grace. And so it is. With our salvation, we are only safe and safe and secure in Jesus Christ who proclaims peace to those who are far and to those who are near. Let me try another one. In Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, there are two lost boys, right? One was lost in the far country. The other was lost in the backyard. One came home to be restored to his father. The, the elder brother ends the story nearby but still far away. It reminds us that a person can waste their life at a nightclub and a person can waste their life on a church pew. What matters is your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who preaches peace to those who are far and to those who are near. We receive the message of peace through Christ, says verse 17, and then verse 18 says we enjoy the privilege of peace through Christ. Dr. Aiken mentioned, we believe in the triunity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, coexistent, co-equal, co-eternal. I'm not going to try to explain that. You, you try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away, you'll lose your soul. Of course, the term Trinity is not in the Bible, but the truth is absolutely there. We have an affirmation of it here in verse 18, where Paul says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In 
him, God the Son. We both, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, young or old, black or white, rich or poor, we all have access by one spirit, God the Spirit, to the Father, God the Father. The unity of the church, friends, is rooted in the unity of God himself. Every member of the Godhead was at work to bring us together in one new race called the church. God the Father planned it, God the Son accomplished it, and God the Spirit sustains it. Paul here says in verse 18, through him we both have access. What a wonderful term. Access. <laughs> they have since moved. But there was a family that lived a block away from my family. A white family that lived at the next corner and their son fell in love with my son. And any given time, their son would just barge in through our garage into the kitchen and say, is HB here? Uh, I'm not sure, I just got home. Well, I'll go upstairs and see. I got good friends that don't just march upstairs, but he'd march right upstairs. He'd come by and say, what are we having for dinner? <laughs> sister Crystal, one day my sister was visiting from out of town. She's sitting on the couch and this little fella runs through. Is HB here? No, don't worry, I'll just go look for myself. And my sister said, what? It's going on. And I just waved her off and says, don't worry. He's my son's friend. And in the real sense, this is what Paul is saying. He is saying beyond race, beyond culture, beyond uh, background. He is declaring to us that because you are friends with the Son. You have access to all that the Father has. It doesn't matter if you're near or far. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like. We all have access in the Son, by the Spirit, to the Father. We have access. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That covers my past. But we also have access through faith into this grace wherein we stand. That's my present. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. That's my future. How should I respond to, what, to such a wonderful privilege? Verses 5, chapter 5 of Romans, verses 3 through 5, says in light of this access, you don't just rejoice over the access, you rejoice even in your sufferings. This is what I said to my church in the weeks after the Ferguson and all of the other upheaval of the last year. Because we have access. We rejoice even in our sufferings because suffering 
produces steadfastness and steadfastness develops our character and character establishes our hope and hope never disappoints because the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Last year our church, which is a predominantly African-American church, merged with another local Baptist congregation in our city, predominantly white congregation. I was meeting with the leaders and members of that church, taking questions, addressing their concerns, and I got a strange question. An old white brother stood up and said, Brother H.B., if we merge, will you still let us have the beast feast? I'm looking around for help. <laughs> what is the beast feast? See, I said, well, we'll see. <laughs> After the meeting was over, he pulled me aside. And he said, and this was the turning point where I knew everything was going to be all right. He pulled me aside and he said, bro, Pastor H.B., I know you don't know what the Beast Feast is, but it's an annual men's event we have every summer. And we just kill up some game, and we cook it all up, and we just let the brothers eat till they're full. And then we have a guest speaker that shares the gospel. I've been over this event for 12 years, and every year, men have been one to Jesus Christ. He said, you're going to be my pastor in a few months. And it's up to you to have it or not have it. That's your call. But I hope you'll pray about having it. He said, because, Brother Charles, I'm sure you'll agree with me that if just one redneck comes to Jesus, it's worth it all. <laughs> and I said, I do agree with you. <laughs> I was out at my car with several other brothers from my church. I was sharing with them that story. They did not believe me. I'm their pastor. They didn't believe me. He happened to walk out, and I said, there he is. I said, come here, brother. I said, I dare you to tell him what you just told me. And he told him, we should have the beast feast because if one redneck comes to Jesus, it's worth it all. We all laughed. Until he said, you're laughing because you don't know. We all rednecks. We've all been covered by the blood of Jesus. So we'll get through this transition because the blood of Jesus has made us one. To which I say, praise the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth, its wisdom, its authority, its clarity, its power. Thank you for the fact that your word points us to the only one who can establish peace between God, with God and with self and with others around us. And he has done that by the blood of his cross that has made us one, that has broken down the wall of hostility, 
that has created a new man that has provided access to the Father, that has given us a message to proclaim to the world. And I pray, Father, that for the sake of your glory, you would give us a passion to both proclaim this message of reconciliation to the nations and to live this message of reconciliation in the local fellowship of believers with whom we worship and serve. And may the body life of the church and our love for one another be proof to the world of the difference Jesus makes for your glory. Amen.